You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stowville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. You're listening to 1059 The Region. I'm station manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up today, if you have a young person in your household starting their first year of college or university, we have advice to help you both get through it. Also on the show, Carl Wolf pays a visit to us here at the region. His music and his positive energy is just ahead. But we begin with the back-to-school forecast and beyond. Afwaba with Environment Canada's Dave Phillips. Well, the back-to-school season has officially arrived. And we want to know, how should the kids be dressing up uh, when they're heading into class? Should they have T-shirts and shorts, or should they put on, you know, a little bit more of a heavier jacket when going back to class? And also, what is fall looking like? Well, joining me to chat today and getting the full wrap-up of what to expect is none other than Senior Climatologist with Environment Canada, David Phillips. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. Well, nice to be with you, Afwa. All right. Okay. So first off, what can the kids expect and what can parents expect in terms of dressing up for back-to-school weather? Well, you know, I think that uh, we see at the beginning, um, uh, certainly the Monday, Tuesday looks uh, pretty good. Lots of sunshine. Temperatures, for example, on the first back-to-day school, if it happens to be Tuesday, well, the normal highs in, uh, in, in Markham and Unionville and in York Region would be a high of around 23, and we see 25 degrees uh, in the shade. So that looks pretty good. So I think kids will be wearing more summer-like items, uh, uh, probably to, to start, uh, by the end of the night, we might be into some showery weather in the next day. So, hey, they may be changing over to more rain gear uh, come uh, come Wednesday. But, um, you know, uh, September is a kind of a fickle month. Uh, it's the month where we sometimes we have two or three days of summer-like weather, and then, oh, my gosh, there seems to be frost in the air. I mean, it's the very nature of it. We lose about an hour um, uh, and, well, maybe three minutes or three and a half minutes per day. Every day is a little shorter. The sun's a little lower in the sky. So we, we do know that, that the fall is, is a time when uh, we get to the point where the hours of daylight match the hours of darkness. And that certainly comes up in, in September. But I think we kind of, when people talk to me about the weather, and they often, at the end of summer, they say, well, what's the winter going to be like? I say, I don't know, and I don't care. I want to know. I want to focus on the fall. The fall is a a legitimate season. It's September, October, November. We have the gorgeous falls in, in Ontario here and uh, the color change season, uh, temperatures where you can, you don't need your air conditioning on, your heat on, it's free energy time. And so my sense is that what we're going to see this year is, uh, is a decent kind of a September. So I think kids going back to school will, um, it might be jacket weather at times, but it certainly won't be uh, parkas or anything like that as it would would be in, say, Western Canada. So I think that frost, we may not even see frost in September. Uh, typically, we don't normally see it until about the, uh, the middle of, um, of October on average, about uh, Thanksgiving Day. Um, and so I think the color change season uh, and the warmth of September will be something that we'll be uh, grateful for. And of course, if it is warmer than normal, it just makes that cold season a little shorter. You know what? It's a good start to the back-to-school season. At least there's going to be some sunshine uh, before it's, we start transitioning into the rain. So there's some good good news out of this and something to look forward to. As you mentioned, September looks a little bit fickle. Um, and, of course, we're leading into the fall. Right now, we're getting a little bit of cooler temperatures. I'm not sure if it's just me or uh, maybe we've been spoiled in general with warmer temperatures than usual over the summer. But it seems like it's been getting cooler rather quickly um, leading into September. And I just want to kind of know, is this maybe an indication of what fall is going to be like? Are we going to get cooler uh, temperatures uh, than usual? Are we going to be maybe spoiled with a little bit more warmer weather leading into the fall this year? Well, I mean, I think it's it's really all of the above in a way. I mean, we know that if you look at the average temperature between 
um, July and August, it's it's only one degree. August is one degree cooler than July, but August but September averages out to be almost five or almost five and a half degrees cooler than August. You say, and uh, and it's even more so from September to October. So what we see is the temperature changes get quite dramatic uh, very soon. So um, I, I think that it's too much to expect the the dog days of summer. We get on average in uh, Markham and Unionville um, about one day uh, per year that in September where we might see a temperature of 30 degrees. So that tells you some years you don't get any, and other years you get uh, uh, you get a couple. It happened to be last year we got maybe four of those days. So we know September was very warm last year, and it was almost too warm and humid for uh, kids going back to school. I found it a little bit uncomfortable. So, uh, but then we cooled off dramatically. We almost went from 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 you know, uh, sweat to, to slush uh, in, in October. October, we saw our first snows. We saw the frost, killing frost. We saw some pretty cool temperatures. And so it was kind of last year was a bit of a disappointment because fall was a little shorter. We think this year that right now, September looks like it's going to be warmer than normal. But I must tell you, and you know your, your listeners, I think, know this, that it doesn't mean every day is going to be like that when I say warmer than normal. I mean, the month, when we add the month, all up together. If it is a little bit warmer than normal, then we got one right. Uh, but it's composed of sometimes coolish days and warmer days, and maybe you get a few more warm days and cool days, and so therefore the average comes out to be a little warmer than normal. But we're saying that unlike last year, where everything ended at the end of September, we think the fall season, that is September, October, November, the character, the personality of the fall looks like it's going to be warmer than normal. And I think the real advantage of that uh, is the fact that it makes winter shorter because last year we had a long winter because we were dealing with winter-like weather in October, November, right through to almost June and people were getting a little nasty about it. So last year we didn't have a long fall. My hope this year is we could have a longer fall but you know, you can't prevent the frost and the snow. I mean, you might have snow on the pumpkin and certainly the frost but um, it doesn't mean that it's going to spoil the kind of fall. It's a little too much to expect 30 degree temperatures in October, um, it's more what you get seasonally. So if everything is a little warmer than seasonable in October, November, and uh, uh, certainly September, October, November, then we claim it's going to be warmer than normal. And that's what we're saying right now. Okay, perfect. All right, kids, you've heard uh, the guru here. He's telling you to bring out the sunglasses on the first day of school. You should be just fine. But later on towards the week, maybe grab an umbrella with you. Dave Phillips, it's always a pleasure. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alpha. Bye-bye now. Take care. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next story is for those students starting their first year of college and university and their parents, like our very own Jim Lang, helping them make the move. At the end of August, early September, a busy time for families moving a child into university for the first time. I know our family's doing it with our oldest daughter to talk more about the challenges and maybe something that parents and kids should look out for starting that first week, first couple of weeks of university in Ontario. Thrilled to be talking to Associate Professor John Ippolito from York University. John, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I, sometimes I wonder, uh, as a parent, I think I'm more stressed and nervous about this start of the school year <laughs> than, my, than my daughter is. Well, it is. It's, I mean, it's. I'm not there yet with my kids, but it is. It's a. It's a stressful. It's a stressful experience for everyone. It's a time of transition, and it's to be expected. As a parent, we like to think we've given our kids the tools to make that transition. But are are there some things we should watch out for as a parent to see if our kids trying to hide, but maybe they are have some anxiety are nervous about the start of the school year oh sure sure and and i mean the first suggestion i would make is just a general one it's just keep an open dialogue with your kids about the experience of high school you know both the opportunities and the challenges i mean i know as kids get older typically the communication with parents changes and the parent involvement in the kids education typically drops off so my research is suggesting that anything you can do to keep that dialogue open will serve both the uh, both the, uh, the the student and the and the family it will serve them well now our oldest daughter had a friend who's going into second year now john and they found high school easy and they breezed through with great marks and they were shocked <laughs> 
at the workload and just how difficult the marking was in university, and it really taught them a lesson. What what is the big transition from those kids who excel at high school to the challenges of university curriculum? Yeah, it is. You're right. I mean, it's a big change. I've worked with first-year students and as well-prepared, and you know, and high school teachers do a great job of working with of working with their students. But when you get into first-year university, it's not just an academic shift; it's a cultural shift, right? The expectations, mm-hmm. the circle of friends, uh, and I don't know how to put it in simpler terms, but the, the the kind of the texture of knowledge and the texture of learning is different in a university than it is in high school. Um, and so it's often the case that, you know, kids who are getting straight A's in high school get into first year university and some of their grades are down into the C's. The, the, the advice I would give to parents here is not to freak out and don't put pressure on students to achieve straight A's in their first year. Clearly, you want them to do as well as they can, to achieve as highly as they can, but don't pressure them. I mean, in my experience, first, if if a student can get through first year, their chances of finishing that degree are that much higher. Hmm. Basically, if you make it through that first year, chances are you're going to make it through the degree. So that first year shouldn't, the priority in that first year shouldn't be about getting straight A's. It should be about acclimatizing yourself, acculturating yourself, getting, obviously passing your, passing your courses, but, but, and, and, and if it, if that means they're not straight A's, well, they're not straight A's, but you want to, you want to succeed in that first year, but, but don't, don't press, don't, uh, don't have the, Parents shouldn't exercise that extra pressure, and certainly students shouldn't put that pressure on themselves. Just do your best. Um, uh, dr- uh, make use of the resources that universities make available to first-year students and make your way through that first. Survive the first year. There it is in a nutshell. Survive that first year, and the chances are you're going to get through that degree in that third, three- or four-year degree. Speaking with Associate Professor John Abolito from York University on the feed, and uh, John, I know touring our daughter to the different universities in the province, York, and the different schools is the one thing that stood out to us is the resources that are available, and you alluded to that, for incoming students, for them to succeed and, and to encourage these students to use the facilities at, at the ready that the Absolutely. universities provide for these kids to help them make it through. I mean, to put it quite frankly, I mean, retention rates are something that universities market themselves through. I mean, if they have high retention rates, what that tells you, if you can retain your students the first and second year, it means that you're providing them with an environment and the resources for them to survive that first year. And students, uh, universities with high retention rates are more, more, are, uh, are more marketable, put, uh, to put it quite frankly. So the university, universities, and I know York in particular, uh, prioritizes those supports. They want their they want their first year students to succeed and to get through that first year because they know if they get through that first year, there's a good chance they're going to get through the rest of the degree. I guess the other challenge from your standpoint as a professor is dealing with kids who now are living away from home on a regular basis for the first time, with a roommate probably for the first time. Uh, trying to get into the rhythm of trying to eat decent meals, get decent sleep, handle Mm -hmm. the workload and the social life. There's a lot to handle the first couple months, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is why I'm saying, on the one hand, you don't want what some people are calling (laughs) helicopter parents, you know, monitoring Uh, monitoring every little thing that the kid is doing at university. But it's really important for them to have that communication line open with their parents. You know, even if it's, if it's a phone call or a text, just, just something to, that keeps them grounded. It's an extra grounding for kids as they're making the transition. Because it's a, it's a really, it's a really big transition for, uh, for kids to be making from high school to university. And as you mentioned, in many cases, from living at home to living, uh, living in residence. Well, John, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a helicopter parent. And so I, I've tried to work out a deal with my <laughs> wife and daughter that we don't FaceTime her every day, but we pick a good time once a week to do a little FaceTime, but just to, to see her, because we can see if she's healthy and not too stressed yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that, that, that gets back to the first point I, I made. You know, maintain open lines of communication. And again, by the time you, you, most kids are going into, into first year, they're young adults. So uh, I think, I mean, each family is going to be different, but generally speaking, I would say, you know, treat your kids like they're young adults and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, keep an open, uh, an open exchange of, uh, of, uh, experiences 
um, with them. Let them know that uh, you're somebody that, that they can still talk to, uh, both, again, both the opportunities and the challenges. Um, but I think especially in those first weeks and those first months, that, uh, that connection with home is, uh, is, uh, will serve them well. And, always, and we always talk about athletics in Canada and these great athletes and great kids making the transition to an adult as an athlete. But we forget sometimes, especially in your standpoint in academics, the excitement of these students who could be the equivalent of a great athlete, but in academia, who you see something special like, wow, this kid really is going to go places. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I mean that gives you that gives you uh, you know an, an added an added uh, incentive to see them succeed academically as well because you know if they don't if they you know if they to put it bluntly if they if they flunk out academically that's not going to do their 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 athletics career any good so you know you have to I mean working I mean but students are not all the same some students as you say have athletics as a priority and you have to be able to roll with that you have to realize that they have uh, a whole nother kind of set of concerns and responsibilities that they have to deal with. So, you know, when you're supporting them academically, that has to be part of your consideration, you know? Do you ever run into a, an exceptional student where that you think, even with all your experience, John, stands out, go, this is a really smart young man or woman? Oh, of course, of course. And those are the students, you know, I, with all of my undergraduate students, whether they're first year or fourth year, I've always having the conversation around graduate studies. You know, when you finish your undergraduate degree, are you interested in doing graduate studies? Well, I think you should consider it. With those really strong students, you can have, you can start having those conversations very, very early on hmm. in their undergraduate, in their undergraduate studies, you know. I mean, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's perfectly fine to say, listen, you know, you're doing really strong work here. And as you make your way through your undergraduate studies, you may want to think about where you want to take this after you, after you finish your undergraduate studies. It must be exciting for you to, to stumble upon those students. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can, <laughs> and you can see them, you know, they're like, they're, they're, they're like shining stars, you know, it's like a spark. That's not to say that, I mean, every student, every under, as far as I'm concerned, every undergraduate student has the potential to do graduate studies if that's where they want to go. Sure. Um, it's just that some students come in for whatever reasons, they come in better prepared, more motivated, and just ready to, ready to go for it in the first year. And, and they do stand out. And as I said, you draw, you draw the attention, you draw to their attention the fact that uh, graduate studies is something they may want to think about, you know, three or four years down the road. So just so we're clear, it's not cool if a dad, nerdy dad like me, sits in the back of the lecture hall just to keep an eye on his daughter the first couple of weeks of school? Well, you know what? I think you should do it for your own reasons <laughs> as well. I mean, it's, it's, I think you could, the kind of conversations you can have with your kids, if you have a better sense of what they're experiencing academically, are that much better, that much richer. In that sense, you're kind of both learning something and you both have a common reference point that you can talk about. Johnny Bellito is an associate professor at York University and well-versed in the incoming high school crew to the first-year university. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us in the feed, John. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9, the region where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including how to manage employee burnout. Burnout. It's a term we are hearing more and more these days. What exactly is it and why are we seeing it pop up more frequently in the office? Joining me today to answer these questions is Michael French, Regional Vice President for Account Temps. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Okay, so let's get right into it. What is burnout? And before we actually say what burnout is, what are the symptoms of, let's say, mild to severe burnout for an employee? Well, there, burnout is not something that's new. It's been going on for a while. So when you're feeling exhaustion, when it's repeated exhaustion, when the stress just doesn't go away, or when the negative feelings continue with you day after day, or you have anxiety before you go to work, those are all signs of, of burnout. Why are we now seeing an increasing number of employees burning out, if you will? Well, there's lots on the go, and companies now are doing more with fewer employees. I think we're relying on technology to pick up a bit of the, uh, the workload. And although it's happening, we're also seeing companies wanting to upgrade their employee skills, which also is putting more pressure on everybody. I can so agree with you there um, with the technology factor and in terms of uh, more workload. Um, so then let's get right into it. What can employers do to make sure that their employees um, aren't burning out so frequently? 
So one of the biggest things employers should be doing is meeting with their employees once a week and having a face-to-face meeting and actually talking about managing the priorities. Many people have multiple projects on the go, and they don't know quite which one is the number one priority. So making sure we have been clear to our employees as to what is the priority for the week, that will help. Second is actually going to be asking the employees, how are you feeling? Are you burnt out? And what can we do to help alleviate some of that pressure? Okay, so it's more adding into the let's the human aspect of the employee because when somebody comes into work, it's almost like they're just a number. Get the work done, leave, and and just repeat it. But um, it's just more coming in to be empathetic of the employee and maybe understanding that there are other things that are going on and it's not necessarily the workload. And if there is something going on on the outside, it can, of course, affect what's happening within the workforce. For sure. Managing people is becoming more and more complicated every year. And there's a fine line. It's gotten blurry between sort of the personal life and work life. We have to be aware of what's happening in people's home lives because it does impact our work environment and our productivity. Definitely. Okay, so then we've talked about what employers can do. What can employees do if they are feeling burnt out? Because we know sometimes employees might feel reluctant to go to management to say, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. You know, I think a lot of people feel that way. I think that's sort of an old school thinking. I know when I meet with my employees, many of them are telling me sort of how they're feeling, what's impacting them. I also take a very proactive approach and find out what's more happening in their life. But then that's sort of the preventative on the employee side. There's always great things to do on your own, like yoga or going to a kickboxing class, really gets you to alleviate that pressure, or hobbies like painting or gardening. There's all kinds of things that we should be doing as employees to take advantage of opportunities to release all that stress and burnout. Okay, and um, just looking at the um, the survey here, the greatest burnout factors, it seems like they're more or less the same, but they rank differently in terms of the managers to the workers. For example, unmanageable workload is number one for managers, but uh, unmanageable workload is number two for workers. So which side is technically, quote unquote, right here? I don't know if there's right or wrong. What's interesting is the top two swapped unmanageable workload and interruptions um, and I think we're pretty close on both of those. And the third came through a career stagnation for both workers and managers. But what's really interesting now, we look at the fourth and fifth, managers saying there's data technology that are holding up our employees, and workers are saying it's a toxic work culture. We have to manage all the drama at work. So although they're very close, just slightly different priorities, I think. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, I, that's an interesting one, especially with the data technology, especially how technology is always updating itself. I can see how that can definitely be um, a stress factor for employers and employees. Um, how can an employee then prevent burnout within themselves? I think you touched on it a little bit uh, before. Well, so to manage your internal anxiety and your stress and your burnout, you need to make sure you're taking advantage of time away from the office. Don't uh, don't skip vacations. When you have a vacation, enjoy your time. Unplug from the office. Enjoy time with family and friends. And don't stress or fret about what's happening at work. The stuff at work will always get done. There's lots of people there to help. But enjoy your time away. Okay, and I'm glad you just mentioned this point because what if there are those workers that maybe just have that anxiety thinking, I can't get away from my desk, I have to always be around, I have to always do this, do that, do that, and they don't take the time off. Or um, what if there is that situation where the employee feels like they can't afford the time off? Well, that's, that's actually adding to the burnout and the stress. Everybody needs to take some time away from work. We all can't afford a great big expensive trip down south every year, but even a staycation is uh, very beneficial. But do take time away. You will be far more productive at work. Your career will keep climbing if you actually are taking advantage of your vacation and coming back rest and relaxed. Okay. And I think one of the main things that I'm taking away from this is, of course, um, that line of communication must always remain open and healthy between the manager and the employee because if if it's not healthy in the first place, even if there's a problem um, on either side, it might be difficult to even come forward saying that there's a problem. That's very true. But what was interesting in the survey was we asked both senior managers and employees about burnout. And the senior managers said 96% of their employees were experiencing burnout, but only 
before the employee sits. The managers are very aware that this is happening. So this should not be a taboo subject. This is something you feel talked to with your employers and employees all the time. I agree with you there. Okay, awesome. So then where can residents then go for more information on this survey or uh, anything else regarding account temps? There's lots of great information on our website at accounttemps.com. Perfect. Michael, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, and uh, we hope that employees and employers also take this information into account. Keep that line of communication open, and let's avoid that burnout. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We are nearing the end of summer vacation season, which means many of us are returning to routines, and often a new routine may require a bit of a cleanup. To help us get organized is host of the Clean My Space YouTube channel, Melissa Maker. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Okay, can I start first with what advice do you have for parents who are moving their kids into university dorms? A lot of them are doing it this time of year. How do you sanitize and clean those spaces? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the first thing, take a deep breath. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of work, but we can get through it together. Um, The second thing is I would suggest go in, do an assessment of the space, and see what is needed because it's sort of difficult to make plans sight unseen. So once you actually know what you're working with, the different types of finishes, the size of the space, and the general cleanliness of the space, you can start to prepare your cleaning arsenal so that you can actually go in and do what you need to do. Uh, I never stayed on residence, so I don't have exact uh, examples to provide from my own life, but from what I know of friends and relatives who have done it, a lot of the finishes are fairly um, hard surface finishes. They're very difficult to mess up. And there are also a lot of rules about what you can and can't put on the walls and bring into the space. For example, I believe there are no carpets or soft surfaces, upholstered surfaces allowed, which is actually great for parents because they don't have to worry about, you know, dust mites or potential bed bugs. So that's actually a great bonus. I think the most important thing and the thing that you would want to keep in mind would be using something like a disinfectant. Those are available on shelves. You can also make your own using something like rubbing alcohol and water. You can mix up a solution of equal parts to do that. Um, Equal parts water, rubbing alcohol. You can add 20 drops of your favorite essential oil, put that into a spray bottle, and you can use that to disinfect and sanitize the hard surfaces in the room. And I, I would say if you do that, you'd probably be in pretty great shape. The other thing you'd want to consider would be airing out the space just to get rid of any stuffiness So simply opening a window and then making sure that whatever you bring in there abides by rules and also is minimal because the last thing you want to do is clutter up a small space. All really good advice there for sure. What about those students that maybe are, you know, leaving residence and moving into their um, first condo or apartment? What do you do about battling dust mites or or bed bugs? Well, uh, if you had bed bugs, you would want to call in a professional company to deal with that. But typically, um, you would be able to see them. (laughs) And they're easy to see. They kind of walk around and, you know, they're in the bedroom uh, you can lift up a mattress and have a look there, but we would assume that anybody who would be moving out of an old space and into a new one, uh, that there would have to be a significant cleaning happening in that area uh, or in that home. If you did have any concerns, though, you could always contact a professional and let them take care of that for you. Uh, in terms of dust nights, anytime you move into a new home or a new space and there are soft surfaces, for example, if you're taking on someone's uh, window coverings, or if there's a space you're moving into with carpets, I would highly recommend hiring a professional steam cleaner or carpet cleaner to come in and take care of those areas for you. And then you can rest assured any little dust mites, and oftentimes they'll be able to tell you if there are bed bugs they will be able to take care of that stuff for you. Okay, so let's bring it back to our home space. And what about organizing children's bedrooms and closets and and maybe even some deep cleaning tips for in and around our own homes? You know, at the end of the summer season, especially for those of us with kids, and I have an 18-month-old daughter at home, and she is growing like crazy. So she's always cycling through clothing. And you have to consider this stuff will never fit her again. You know, she's 
18 months now. So for 12 to 18 months stuff for the summer will just have to be boxed up. And what I like to advise people to do, parents to do, is organize clothing by season and by size. So that way, if, you know, you're planning on having more kids or if you want to donate your clothes either to a charity or if you have a friend or family member that you want to provide hand-me-downs to or even sell your stuff at a consignment shop, we need to talk about that in a second. Um, Those are all great things that you can do to help free up space, but organizing will make sure that you're not getting rid of anything that you don't want to and that you're only getting rid of the things that you actually need to. Does that make sense? It really does. And, you know, let's go back to then selling your stuff and going to consignment shops. So they'll want to make sure that the garments are in good condition. You know, oftentimes you'll see gently used clothing affiliated with higher end or good quality consignment shops. So I'm not talking about, you know, used clothing stores or secondhand shops, really. I'm talking about the places that you can go to get better quality items. I do consignment shopping quite a bit, particularly for my daughter. And I have found things that have probably been worn once or twice and have paid pennies on the dollar for them. So the expectation when you're bringing things in, they're clean, they're stain free, they don't smell, they don't have holes or damage, they don't look too worn. Um, And it's something that another parent would be able to use for their kids or another person would be able to wear and enjoy. And the nice thing is you declutter your closet and you can put money back in your pocket, which is something I think we're all really into. And how do you how do you part with your stuff? Because that's often the most difficult part of cleaning up or decluttering. You hit the nail on the head. It really is that emotional connection that people have with their stuff. I bought it when I was on vacation. Grandma bought it. I got it at such a good deal. I used to love this. Like there are so many excuses and reasons and things um, and ways that people can negotiate their way out of getting rid of something. But when it comes down to it, we have to say, do I love it? Do I need it? Does this make me happy? If it can cross all of those things off the list, you should have it. But for example, with clothing, you know, if you're, if you haven't worn it in six months and you don't really see a future opportunity where you'll wear it, but you kind of hang on to it saying, maybe just maybe I'll wear it that one time. Yeah. Because I'm going to fit into it again. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, I mean, that excuse is a whole other thing. I'm a firm believer that we should only keep in our closet what fits us right now. Because if we don't, it it sort of harbors negativity and, you know, we can start to feel badly about ourselves. And it's sort of like bad juju to keep stuff in your closet that doesn't fit you. That's just a personal opinion. I think we should have garments in our closet that we love and that look good on us so that we can pull outfits together easily and walk out our door feeling confident. I like that philosophy for sure. Tell us a little bit about your book. So my book is also called Clean My Space, The Secret to Cleaning Better, Faster, and Loving Your Home Every Day. And the inspiration behind the book, I started a cleaning company back in 2006 in Toronto. Uh, I still have that company now. And I started it because I hate cleaning. I say that in the present tense because I still do. Uh, And I knew a lot of other people hated it as well, which is why I decided to start this business in the first place. That then turned into a YouTube channel and a website. And the book was basically my way of parlaying everything I had learned from developing a training program and finding ways to become super efficient with cleaning. I wanted to share that in book form because a lot of people, like we're not taught how to clean it at school anymore. We don't have any domestic classes and our parents, you know, they're too busy to teach us how to clean kids. They're told clean your room or clean up the kitchen, but they're not really given formal instruction. So I wanted my book to kind of be like a fun instruction manual slash reference guide where people could just look at it and have the definitive way to clean something that would be super efficient um, for them. Now, can you share with us just a couple of maybe quick tips to be super efficient in cleaning? Uh, my favorite tip is what I call using the S pattern when you're cleaning. So when people wipe things down, they typically go in this like crazy circular buffing motion, which is actually a quite inefficient way to clean because you're taking a clean cloth, you're spraying the surface with product, and then you're wiping in circles, which leaves a lot of streaks and marks and doesn't actually clean a surface. If you use what I call the S pattern, you start at one corner 
at the top of the surface, you swipe, you swipe your way all the way over to the other corner with the same hand and you sort of zigzag your way down to the bottom. And if you can imagine this in your head by doing it, or even if you do it in your hand, with your head while you're listening to me, if you do it, you'll see it's efficient. You don't get streaks. You're not repopulating a cleaned area with dirty uh, water or dirty a dirty cloth again. Like it's just very efficient. And also it allows you, if you're on a horizontal surface, to sweep all of the dirt or dust from one end to the other. Uh, and cupping it in your cloth without, you know, redistributing it, redistributing it around the surface. So that is like my one of my all-time favorite tips. That's and a good one. Kind of fun and easy one is when you're cleaning your toilet. You know, you finish cleaning it. You have that drippy toilet bowl brush, and then what do you do? You just put it back in a brush container, and it's kind of wet, and it sits there. That's where bacteria can start to harbor, and where things can start to get smelly and grungy. So a great little tip is to just finish scrubbing your toilet, flush, give your brush a little rinse, and then put the toilet seat down with the brush still on the rim of the toilet bowl. This will trap the brush there and allow it to drip dry into the toilet bowl. And then a few hours later, when it's dry, pick it up and put it back into the bowl brush container. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Very good. Okay, well, if our listeners want to watch your videos or connect with you, Melissa, how can they do that? So they can find our videos on YouTube. Just look up Clean My Space. We also have a website, cleanmyspace.com. And, of course, we're on Instagram at Clean My Space, and I am at my name, Melissa Maker. Thanks for joining us on the feed. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. We hit the court for our next story from Tennis Canada. These are very, very heady days to be a tennis fan in Canada. There's so much great young talent in this country. It's hard to know where to begin. But best of all, there was the incredible story of Bianca Andreescu at the Rogers Cup making Canadian tennis history, the first Canadian woman to win her national tennis tournament in 50 years. To talk more about that and the future of this great sport in this country, thrilled to be speaking to the Senior VP of Tennis Canada Development, Adam McDaddy. Adam, how are you? Very well, Jim. Uh, It has been wild to see people like Milos Raonic and Denis Shapovalov and their emergence, but what Bianca has done over the last year and a half and culminating in the victory over Serena Williams, albeit with the injury, but still a victory nonetheless. It has been a remarkable ride. Uh, it's been incredible, and remarkable is a great word. And, and for Bianca to win Indian Wells and, and to have the best hardcore record on the tour right now, um, and then come back after sustaining some injury and being off for a couple months and coming back at the Rogers Cup here, and taking the title and beating Serena, and, and more importantly for me was how she handled Serena's injury, her her humanness, her care, her sensitivity, and just giving her a hug, just showed tremendous character as a an athlete, but as a person. So we're excited for the future with her and Felix and Dennis. Uh, lots of great things happening. Adam, I'm glad you brought that up because of there was one moment of the Rogers Cup that went viral around the sports world in all continents. It was that touching moment with Bianca showing the utmost respect, getting down on her knees, holding the hands of Serena Williams and hugging her and just talking about what she's meant to her. Uh, it's one of those little nuggets of sportsmanship we just don't see enough of anymore. But, man, it really touched a nerve for a lot of people, not just in this country, but around the world. Oh, it, like I was watching that, and I said, she's remarkable for a 19-year-old, and it's so genuine to just have that ability, that innate ability to say, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm out here trying to be the best in the world, but there's a human quality, said, are you okay? Her first instinct was to see if Serena's okay, then to console her. And then I think it hit her. I just won the Rogers Cup. So <laughs> it, it was remarkable to watch. And I, I think Serena called her an old soul uh, well beyond her 19 years. Billie Jean King made some comments about um, this is what we need more of, you know, trying to be the best you can be, but caring and being empathetic towards uh, your competitors. 
Speaking to Adam McDaddy on the feed, the singer VP of Tennis Canada Development. And Adam, I, I guess with the emergence of Adina Shapovalov and Bianca Andreescu, you wonder, what is the next wave? How is the sport of tennis emerging in Canada in the last few years? Well, it, you know, this the inspiration, and it, it started with Daniel Nestor and then Jeannie at Wimbledon in 14 and then Milos in 16 and Vasek winning Wimbledon doubles and many others over the years, but that inspiration has translated to growth at the grassroots level. We're, we are at historic numbers um, of, of growing popularity of, of tennis participants, tennis fans, and frequent players, and under 12 uh, kids playing in frequent plays. So I, I believe we're close to 7 million Canadians played last year, and, and the frequent play number is up 25 or 30% year over year. So we're seeing the benefits of of high performance and the inspiration as a means to grow and develop the sport. And we're ecstatic. And, and a lot of Canadians are connecting well with our sport. You know, Adam, I'm glad you brought that up because my wife and I, we have teenage daughters and they were in non-contact sports, swimming and gymnastics and whatnot. But I also, I hear from so many parents they have concerns about certain sports because of injuries and concussions, and they're gravitating to swimming, to golf, to basketball, and to tennis because it's a great physical sport, tennis. You have to be in great shape to play it, but the risk of injury is far less than it is in other sports. And for a lot of parents, it's a, it's a great comfort level having your son or daughter play it. Yeah, and, and listen, I, I, I've, I have three kids, uh, and they play all sports, and I'm, I'm a huge sports fan, so I, I think sport is... Uh, terrific for developing character and, and health and well-being and uh, healthy, active lifestyles. But, you know, my passion is tennis, and I love tennis. So I, I think the fact, all the factors you suggested, Jim, are are favorable towards tennis. Um, and and I would also say, we, you know, as, as our society and our multiculturalism has evolved, new Canadians coming to Canada, our studies show have a love and affinity and a culture for tennis. It's one of the top three sports. So, we're, you know, we, we feel it's a great sport um, for Canadians to partake in. It used to be that come the cold winter months, you'd have to go to an exclusive you know, like tennis racket club or go down south to practice and work on your craft. Are we starting to see more affordable, accessible indoor practice facilities for tennis players in the winter in this country? Well, if, if you hear um, our CEO, Michael Downey, speak, it's one of our biggest challenges is, uh, as, as a society of Canadians, uh, we, we probably have one of the worst ratios of indoor courts, affordable, accessible um, in the world. Uh, some of the leading nations have one indoor court per 5,000 or 8,000 population. We're about one indoor court per 50,000. Uh, and, and, that, and, and that's uh, when you, you know, bring it down to the affordable, accessible courts, taking out the private clubs that are not really as accessible for many. But it, it's one of our biggest challenges. We're working with municipalities. We're working with our provincial partners to try and put in, uh, you know, a, a relatively low-cost program that if, if you can have soccer fields and baseball diamonds and swimming pool and hockey rinks that the city support. Uh, we feel tennis is right there now that we should be part of that discussion, discussion with the municipality. Well said, Adam. This is a very exciting time to be a tennis fan in Canada with so much great young talent. Um, that eventually, Eugenie Bouchard might break through the barrier and be right there with Bianca at some of the finals. Uh, Milos, when healthy, has the most lethal serve on the tour. Uh, it's, you used to watch tennis highlights and go, oh, that's nice. Our Canadian, they got knocked out in the round of 32. But now you're like, well, I wonder how far they're going to go. Oh, they're in the finals. We have that expectation now, and it's really cool to see that. It, it is, and I'll, I'll say this. We have, with Felix, Dennis, and Bianca, the uh, three teenagers that are number one in the world for their ages, and the, the future is bright. There's going to be, hopefully, a lot of great moments uh, for Canadian tennis and Canadian sports fans, and we're thrilled. And, and not only that, but the, the way they conduct themselves, uh, I, I think we should, we'll have a lot of proud moments, hopefully, as people, but also as tennis players. Well, Adam, with you as the Senior VP of Tennis Canada Development, the sport of tennis is in good hands in this country. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak to us. 
Oh, anytime. I'm a big fan of yours, Jim, over the years, so keep up the great work. I always like to hear that. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. If you were listening to 105.9 earlier this week, you know that Canadian talent Carl Wolf joined us in studio. Rob Daniels with the one-on-one. This week, we have a very special guest in studio, Carl Wolf. Thanks so much for being here, Carl. Yeah, Rob Daniels, you're the man. <laughs> you're the man, buddy. <laughs> I, could, I, I tell you're the man because of watching all of your Instagram stories over the summertime. You have been living the life. You've been living large and, and well-deserved, too, because you've been working your tail off, doing all Thank kinds you. of great things in the music industry, and you've had a tour this summer. Uh, so you, you've wrapped up the tour now, from what I understand. How was it? What were the highlights? It was incredible. I mean, usually, like, summer is my time, I guess, and we, we have tons of shows around the world. We, we came back from, we went to Vegas, went to Lebanon, uh, performed in Canada, of course, performed in parts of Europe. So, and, and it's still going. I still got September left. I mean, we're not, we're not over yet. We're going to, I think we're going to Australia in October. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a great time. It's, it's like taking my vacation yeah do do you get do you do you get any sleep ever i barely get sleep man but i I love it this way i i I can sleep about three four hours and i'm good all right uh and trump yeah you what (laughs) you and trump Trump and i he he sleeps four hours i really Mm -hmm. that's it maybe the the best minds only need to sleep four hours that's it right and he's 73 so you know he's doing okay i ain't gonna knock him i mean he's a billionaire (laughs) i I, yes people can say what they want but hey uh you're 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 doing you're doing some really big things and this song is is called yes and uh you uh you have been promoting that and uh and it's a, it's a great track we've added it here to the region uh i want to know throughout this tour uh what what do you think has been the best crowd reaction to that song so far i would say uh the lebanese festival in ottawa yep. is generally you know I'm, I'm my background is lebanese i was born in in beirut lebanon and uh so you know they're very proud i guess and, and the song just you know kicked off with them um but I, but even even Vegas was was popping off. People like the song, man. It just connects, and I'm I'm lucky. We're we're doing okay. Now the people that are featured on it, do they show up for the performance too, or do you only go? Not always. Not, not always. Because what happens is they're they're busy and they got other stuff. But I've got a hype man or or yeah. like a, a DJ that that hypes it up with me. So we don't always need them physically there. Yeah, and obviously throughout the years you've had your. Uh, standout songs as well, like Africa, Amateur at Love, and oh, yeah. uh, they, those have been chart-topping songs as well. Um, other than Yes, obviously, this summer, what song do you enjoy performing most when, when you're out there on Man, stage? It's always Africa. Like That's, that's the, the song I start with sometimes, and it gets everybody in such a mood. Yeah. And then the whole show, I can run the whole show and nobody cares what I'm doing. Like <laughs> After performing that, right? Exactly. You, got, you know what? The, the, the rule is start big, end big. Yeah. Right? And everything in the middle, just explain your story. And, sure. But we've, got, we've had, what, nine, nine hits in my career. You know, I've had Yala Habibi, Mash It Up, Carrera, Africa, um, Amateur at Love. Um, you know, we've had several, several hits. So I've got a cool show. You talk about the crowd getting hype. Is there anything that keeps Carl Wolf hype to, to keep him ticking? Um, yeah, I need to work out. Yeah. That's really important for me. I think when, when my, when I feel like my blood flows and my respiratory system is just, you know, have, taking a beating, I feel like I'm alive yeah. and, it, and it gives me that energy, you know, um, the next day, of course. <laughs> Do you find also like a, a, an eating pattern or something you have to eat healthy or, or have some point. kind of a routine with, with your meals? I'll tell you what it is with me. I just do whatever I want. Really? I think that's, I, so what I mean, not whatever I want, I eat whatever I want, sure. you know, it, within reason. Okay. You know, I, I try to stay away from fast food as much as possible, but I really enjoy the Lebanese cuisine. Yeah. I really enjoy, you know, Greek food, uh, Italian, mm-hmm. Indian. I mean, I, I, I love the cultures, yeah. so I, I generally eat moderately well, but whatever I want. I don't, sure. I don't hold back on, yeah. you know, like rice. If I, I don't care. You know, yeah, it gives me you, energy, right? Yeah. So there's a purpose for everything. So everything in moderation. Yeah, but I, I, you know what I've been doing lately? I've yeah. been kind of doing this uh, intermit, intermittent fasting. That's what I do. I Just love it. Just by default. Yeah, by default. It, literally, I wake up, I go to the studio, I'm working on music, and I forget before I know it, it's 7 o'clock. 7 yeah. p.m., 6 p.m. Yeah. Like, right now, the, the first time I ate was at the barbecue here, just like 5 o'clock. Okay, 5 so that's saying you hadn't eaten since yesterday. Haven't eaten since yesterday. So you've done almost yeah. like the holy grail of intermittent fasting. Is you've that almost 14 hours? <laughs> like, uh, um, for men, 14 hours? Uh, well, 16? I think you went to about 4 o'clock, so... 
The last yeah. time I ate was about 9, yeah, 10 p.m., 11 yeah. p.m., let's say. Oh, okay. So maybe you went about, if my math serves me correct, 15 hour fast. Wow. I don't know, something like that. Probably more. 16? Yeah. Eight, no, maybe 18. Yeah, 18 hours. My, yeah. 18 hour fast. And I feel okay. You know what I mean? Because yeah. obviously I'd love to eat all the time, but we we barely have time. You know, yeah. in this but you look good. You're, you, you're doing something right. Yeah. Um, and in in terms of your music again, which which two songs would you say in your mind over the years always... Um, well, I know you said Africa, but is there anything outside of Africa that, that gets like the crowd so hype, like it, it mm-hmm. blows them up? Like, like you just, I mean, it was Africa mainly the, or no, could you think of others. other ones? Yeah, For sure. Yalla Habibi. Ah, yes, I heard that in, in the Instagram stories when, I don't know who captures that. Exactly. But the, the, the crowd, uh, yeah. I got a guy, like yeah. a social media guy who sure. comes on stage with me. Yeah. So what happens is, um, part of my show is I... I teach people you know what you know two words in arabic yeah. that's kind of the, the 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 moment there and i'm like you know and and they know it yeah so they're, i'm like so what's the song called what's the song called they're like yalla habibi and then i perform the song and people go wild they love it, it people love interactive stuff and they love when you're super genuine yeah about who you are and where you came from that's some i've noticed that even in vegas yeah when i and, and you you think america right they don't like arabs or or whatever or there's this stigma about people coming from the middle east or whatever right in fact, they were people were really interested when I told them I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, grew up in Dubai, and that's when I felt I engaged with the audience. Before that, they, they almost felt like it's just some generic, you know, singer who's coming in and trying to play his songs. But when I connected with them that way, they felt connected with me, and they came backstage later, and they're like, "Oh my God, you're amazing! I love Dubai. I love that song." You know, it's fantastic. It, people people feel closer when you're honest about who you, where you come from. Awesome. Uh, people that Carl Wolf, people you that you would look up to in the music business and who you want to work with in the future that you haven't worked with already. Yeah, I mean, I've toured with Akon maybe seven times so far. Yeah. We've, we've been friends. Um, I've always wanted to work with him, though. We never had the chance. Um, Cardi is someone I wanted to work with, and I worked with him three, four times, Cardinal Fischel. Yeah. Um, I would say maybe a girl this time. Maybe someone like... I don't know if you guys heard of Ira Streffy. Ira Streffy. She had a song called um, Bon Bon. Uh, da, 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 da. Anyway, she's from she's from um, she, where? Like Eastern Europe or whatever. Okay. She's she's really dope. Um, so she's one person I'd love to work with. Anybody else? I mean, I'd love to hang out with Taylor Swift. Yeah, that's cool too. Hey, another female that actually someone was messaging me in my inbox, uh, Natalie Rachel. I don't know if you've heard of that artist. She's a York region artist. She has a song on our station, but uh, I think her mom was messaging me saying, hey, do you think that uh, Carl would ever uh, do a duet with her? I don't know. If you're interested at Natalie Rachel Music on Instagram, and you have out. a go, take 100%. a listen. If she's, if she's good and, and there's a good song and, and it makes sense. You never know. Yeah, you never know. Um, and what's next for Carl Wolf? Is it a is a tour in the winter? or oh God, there's so many things. So yeah, so we're touring until I would say Christmas. Yeah. Um, so keep checking, you know, my my website or, sure. or forget Instagram website. stories. Instagram, yeah, it's yeah. all about Instagram stories, okay, guys. My Instagram mm-hmm. is at Carl Wolf with an S. So Carl Wolf's K A R L W O L F S. Do you do the S thing just because you guys are like a, a a team, like a big team together? You have a big production team. If that's how you want to look at it, amazing. Your I just couldn't. I, someone stole the Carl Wolf without the ah, S, and he wanted fifteen thousand dollars. I was like, jeez, man, <laughs> really? That's the story. He got it early. It. He got it. He's smart. He got he got all of them early. He got the Twitter one. He got the Instagram one, like ten years ago. And he couldn't have just been like a Carl with a C. Yeah, no. no, he did it on purpose. He did it on purpose. Yeah, he knew that wow. I would want it one day, and and I would and he would charge me. Some people, yeah, he doesn't man. use it. It's just the egg. Is it? Gee, you know the egg on yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, on yeah, Twitter, or Instagram, man, or yeah. Well, uh, we are so hyped that you stopped by here at 105.9 The Region and that you're doing big things and we can't wait for all the new material in the, new f- in the near future. We know uh, it's, it's going to be bigger, than, bigger and better than ever. So uh, follow him again at Carl Wolf's on Instagram, carlwolf.com. Thank you so much for being on the feed this weekend and uh, thanks for being a part of 105.9 The Region. Thank you, Rob. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.